What's up? What's up? This is Zach Boschman checking in. You are locked into the Citizen Truth podcast. We are honored today to have Alice Slater on the podcast. Alice, let's get right into it. What is the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation? Well, that's an organization that um, works for the end of nuclear weapons on the planet. Uh, they're based in California, and I represent them at the United Nations because we're an NGO. And they're part of this original network of Abolition 2000. It was formed in 1995 at the Non-Proliferation Treaty Conference, where that was the treaty where five nuclear weapon states promised to give up their nuclear weapons, the U.S., Russia, China, England, and France. And all the rest of the world promised not to get them. And everybody signed except three countries, India, Pakistan, and Israel, and they got them. And the treaty had this Faustian bargain that if you sign the treaty and promise not to get nuclear weapons, we'll give you the keys to the bomb factory because we gave them so-called peaceful nuclear power. And of course, every nuclear reactor is a bomb factory. So North Korea joined the treaty, left, and used their peaceful nuclear power to make a bomb. And we were concerned that Iran was doing that, but they weren't. And the treaty was for 25 years. So in 1995, it was supposed to, be, to expire unless the parties got together to renew it. And civil society showed up from all over the world, including the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation. I was then with the economists against the arms race and there were many civil society groups and we got together to observe this new treaty and to make sure if they renewed it, that they made more promises because although they signed it in 1970, this was 1995 and there were now triple the amount of nuclear weapons on the planet. You know, so it wasn't very good faith. So we got together and formed our Abolition 2000 Network, demanding a treaty by the year 2000 to abolish nuclear weapons. And we also asked for the phase out of nuclear power and the establishment of an international renewable energy agency. And the uh, Nuclear Age Peace Foundation was the first secretariat for it. And after that, it moved to my... NGO at that time I was with Grace and we drafted a model treaty. We actually did a model uh, treaty for the International Renewable Energy Agency that went through the Economic and Social Council and we got IRENA established. That was a big victory. There's now, there used to be just the IAEA for atomic energy and the IEA for fossil energy, but there was nothing for renewable energy. So now we have that agency and it's been promoting all the new technology and helping us hopefully to avoid the other existential crisis we face, which is the destruction of the planet by global warming or nuclear war. I mean, pick your poison. So that's how I got into that. And now, since then, I've, I've not been working as directing a nonprofit, but I volunteer on the board of World Beyond War, which I think is the best because, you know, they're talking about getting rid of this missile, get rid of nukes, but nobody's saying get rid of war, you know, like, so it's to sort of promote that as an idea and show that it's not, it's not a myth. 
you know, in the 70s, I was active in a group called the Hunger Project, and it was designed to make the end of hunger on the planet, and I do as time has come. And at that time, everybody said hunger was inevitable, you'll never get rid of it, there's too many people, there's not enough food. Anyway, we just kept putting out facts that there is enough food, that you can limit population as soon as poor families know that they'll be fed. They don't have 10 children, they just have to, you know. So, and we kept putting out these facts and even though we didn't end hunger, that was in 1976, the Sustainable Development Goals of promoting the end of, it's like, it's not a ridiculous idea now, it's, it's considered acceptable. And that's what we wanna do. Like war is so 20th century. I mean, we haven't won a war since World War II, so why do we keep doing all these wars? You know, I mean, it gets us nowhere. All it does is make more terrorists. And now we're running out of terrorists, so we're making China and Russia the enemy, you know. You know, President Eisenhower was a general that won World War II, and his farewell address in the 50s was to watch out for the military-industrial complex. And that's what's driving this. We really don't have enemies. We don't have enemies. Russia and China are begging us to make a deal. You never see this in the media because even though Eisenhower talked about the military industrial complex, there's a new group, Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity, VIPs. And Ray McGovern is an active, he's in the leadership and he was a CI briefer, he briefed Bush, he briefed Clinton every morning. That he was like a top CIA guy, quit, formed VIPs. And he says it's not the MIC, the military, it's the Mickey Mac. It's the military, industrial, congressional, intelligence, media, think tank complex. You know, it's like that whole blob, you know, that's mm-hmm. doing our foreign policy. You know? So that's then what's very exciting. The MPT was doing so poorly that in 2020, and they weren't making good on any of their promises to get rid of nuclear weapons, they were building war, and uh, South Africa made this statement that this MPT is ridiculous, the world is, the nuclear weapon states are holding us hostage, the rest of the world hostage. And the Red Cross made a terrific speech about the catastrophic consequences of nuclear bombs. And we started a campaign, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, to get a treaty that says they're prohibited, they're forbidden, you can't have them, you can't use them. Because the MPT just said, we'll make good faith efforts. You know, it didn't say they're illegal like we did with chemical and biological weapons. And that was a 10-year campaign. And in 2017, the governments at the UN negotiated. Of course, none of the nuclear weapon states went. Or our NATO allies and our Pacific allies, Australia, Japan, and South Korea, that we call the U.S. nuclear umbrella. So anyway, they didn't uh, vote for the treaty, but 122 nations did. And it needed 50 countries to enter into force to ratify it. So we had over 80 countries signed it. But this uh, January 22nd, the 50th country ratified it. And now it's force of war. It entered into force. Nuclear weapons are illegal. 
can't have him, he can't use him, he can't threaten to use him, he can't share all the things we're doing. So that's going to stigmatize the bomb. And what's really ridiculous is that the U.S. keeps nuclear weapons in five NATO countries. We keep mm -hmm. them in Germany, Belgium, Holland, Italy, and Turkey. And there's huge grassroots protests and demonstrations at the weapons bases because now they're illegal, you know. So it's seeping in. I think it's going to stigmatize the bomb. And we've, in the U.S., we have cities passing resolutions. We have a parliamentary pledge. Uh, Eleanor Holmes Norton has a bill in to, to, for the U.S. to sign the ban treaty and use and convert the weapons I don't know if you know it, but Obama made a deal with Medvedev. You know, he was Putin's temporary president. For a trillion dollars in two new nuclear bomb factories and new warheads, missiles, airplanes, submarines. This was Obama, not Trump. You know, and then Trump upped wow. it. And oh, Biden's not going anywhere either. Mm -hmm. So now in America... There's a bill in, I think it's Marky, to, to cut one missile or Ohana. And then there's another bill, this I hate, no first use, which I think is ridiculous, to have a bill to say no first use, as if we're not already using them. You know, Dan Ellsberg always says, when a bank robber walks into the bank and points a gun, he doesn't have to shoot it, he's still <laughs> using it. And what does no first use mean? We'll use it seconds? I mean... We can't yeah. do things. They're prohibited. And this whole campaign arose in the wake of the ban treaty. We won the Nobel Peace Prize. I went to Oslo, like 2,500 other people, but the campaign won the Nobel Peace Prize for getting the ban treaty through in 2017. And along comes all the fans of Mickey Mouse that McGovern talks about, and they're funding the so-called peace movement to push for no first use, and you hear it on the radio, and you hear it on television, and Elizabeth Warren has a bill in, and nobody's paying attention to Eleanor Holmes Norton, who has put this bill in the last 20 years, except now, last year after the ban treaty, she made it stronger, saying, you know, we should join the ban treaty, but she's always had a bill in for abolition, and the other good guy on nuclear abolition was Dennis Kucinich and the Democrats redistricted him and he lost his congressional seat. They put only Republican, but you could always go to Dennis for a nuclear abolition bill. He wanted to establish a department of peace, you know, mm -hmm. so we're, we, we have our work cut out for us. <laughs> Let's dig into that. No first use a little bit. Um, how does just the existence of, of nuclear weapons escalate tensions between nations? Well, first of all, there are 14,000 nuclear bombs on the planet, and 13,000 are in the U.S. and Russia. All the other seven countries, China, China has 300 bombs, you know, the big, North Korea has like 10 but then there's England, France, Israel, Pakistan, India. Those are the other seven countries between them have 1,000 bombs. So it's really up to us in Russia. And if you, I've been studying history, I really couldn't get over this about us in Russia. Woodrow Wilson sent 
30,000 American troops to St. Petersburg to help the white Russians against the peasants. This is like, what the hell were we doing in Russia in 1919 after World War I? You know, it was like, this is this capitalist system that's going down the tubes now, you know, like the patriarchy. And it's like, it's being so, but they, then when we won World War II with Stalin and defeated Hitler, Stalin said to Truman, who was president at the time, they were setting up the UN, turn the bomb over to the UN because we had used it in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We killed like uh, 250,000 people, plus many more afterwards from the heat, you know, but just the initial shock, it was like a horrible weapon and we won the war and it was over and we were forming the United Nations. The mission was to end the scourge of war and the first resolution was for nuclear disarmament. And we were the only ones that had the bomb. And Stalin said to Truman, turn it over to the UN under UN control. And we said no. And Russia got the bomb and the arms race was on. And then when Gorbachev let go of all of Eastern Europe without a shot, this was like a miracle, right? He ended the Soviet occupation. And he and Reagan met. Gorbachev said to Reagan, let's get rid of all the nukes. And Reagan said, good idea. But Gorbachev says, don't do Star Wars. Because we have documents for Star Wars that say that the U.S. is going to dominate and control the military use of space. Well, they're not going to give up their nukes if we're going to try to dominate them in space. And then Putin said to Clinton, let's cut to 1,000. At that point, we had about 16,000. And by the way, we went down from 70,000 nuclear weapons to the 14,000 now. So we know how to do it. We were negotiating all those years with Russia, you know, verifying and making sure and seeing where the dismantlement was happening. And, you know, we did, we know how to do it. It's not, it's not. Um... So anyway, Putin said to uh, Clinton, let's cut to a thousand each and call everybody else to the table, but don't put missiles in Romania because that was another thing. Gorbachev, was very concerned about Germany being reunited and coming into NATO because I didn't know this, but the Russians lost 27 million people to the Nazi onslaught. I never heard that number. I mean, I'm Jewish. We talk about the 6 million that died in the Holocaust. You know, everybody knows 6 million, but whoever heard 27 million in Russia? So anyway, he was really nervous when he let all those countries go peacefully and that we were going to, you know, reunite Germany. It had been separated. He said, don't put it into NATO. And Reagan said, don't worry. Let them be reunited. Let Germany come into NATO. And we promise you, we will not expand NATO one inch to the east. Well, we're right up to their border. And Bush walked out of the anti-ballistic missile. It's not just Trump. You know, Bush walked out of the anti-ballistic missile treaty that we had with uh, the Soviet Union from 1972. They put the missiles into Romania and Trump put them into Poland, you know, and we're just stirring up the war machine. It's just to line the pockets of the military contractors and industrials. I mean, it's such an ugly picture. We do not need them. They don't make us safe. They make us 
Not only that, us and Russia, we each have 2,500 pointed at each other, ready to go off on missiles, you know. Like now they have one that the only sole use, like the president can't be the only person to authorize it to do it. The Congress has to authorize it. Come on. Right? It's not going to happen like that. We've had so many near misses. We had the... the, uh, the the uh, commander of the U.S. Strategic Command, the leader, General Lee Butler, I think Clinton put him in, grounded all the planes that were flying 24-7 carrying nuclear bombs in addition to the submarines that are marauding and the missiles that are pointed. Because I, had, I saved a congressional record. There were 36 airplane crashes carrying nuclear weapons. Oh, my gosh. And none of them ever went off. One of them spewed a little plutonium in Palomaris, Spain, and another one in Thule, Greenland, and they cleaned it up, but they never went off. There's one off the coast of Georgia they never found, you know. And Russia did a movie, The Man Who Saved the World, about Colonel Petrov. Did you ever hear this movie? No. Colonel Petrov was in the Russian missile silo, and he sees something on his computer that he thinks we're attacking Moscow and St. Petersburg. And his instructions are to let them all go, you know, get New York and Boston, Washington. You know, that's how it's set up. The uh, And he, he waited, and it was a computer glitch, and we didn't have a war. And they were mad that's that he... so crazy. They did a whole movie about it. He wound up in poverty like he, they, he was totally discredited, that he wasn't, you know, a good soldier. So anyway... Oh, and then about four years ago, there was a plane in Minot, North Dakota. Minot, M-I-N-O-T, North Dakota, the Air Force Bay, loaded like six missiles loaded with nuclear bombs that went to Louisiana by mistake. And we didn't know it was missing for 36 hours. I mean, that's how it's going to happen. It's going to be some stupid accident. And we're just so lucky that it hasn't happened yet. And the money they're spending on new weapons, new missiles, it's like crazy. We only use two. Yeah. Oh, and China and Russia in 19, uh, in 20, during the Bush administration and during the Obama administration, tabled a model treaty. I think it was 2014, 2018. A model treaty to keep weapons out of space because they keep saying they can't negotiate for disarmaments unless we acknowledge their strategic stability. In other words, we they're not going to give up their nukes if we're not going to give up our domination in space. So they want to they want a treaty. And every year the UN pair and the US blocks it. You need consensus to discuss it and we won't even talk about it. And every year there's a, a resolution in the UN General Assembly, Paros, prevention of an arms race in outer space, and Russia and China propose it, and everybody except us. We do not want it. That's how corrupt we are. It just, it's so sad. Are you, can, yeah, go ahead. About the Red Scare that we're going through now, you know, and they're making China and Russia the enemy. Yeah, yeah, I want to get into that. Uh, do you... Yeah, I grew up in the 50s during the McCarthy Red Scare, mm -hmm. right? And I went to Queens College, and I was having a discussion with somebody. That's in New York City. I grew up in the city, but they were, and 
she said, here, you should read this. And she gives me a pamphlet. And it says, Communist Party of America. I was terrified. My heart was pounding fear. I put it in my book bag. I went home to the Bronx. I go up to the eighth floor and move directly to the incinerator and throw it down the chute without even looking. That's how scared to even hold some. I mean, like, you know, they executed the Rosenbergs. You know, they were arresting people. It was like terrible, right? Then in 1989, I was working as a volunteer with the Lawyers Alliance for Nuclear Arms Control. That's how I got into this. I saw something in the wardrobe. I was a lawyer and I saw this and I said, that's interesting. And I went back to law school. My kids were born, you know, like I was. And I go and I got very involved and I, in the Lawyers Alliance and Gorbachev stopped nuclear testing. There was this Kazakh poet, Olzas that led a march in Kazakhstan that Soviets tested. Their, their test site was semi-politinsk in Kazakhstan. And there were so many, and they were doing underground testing. Kennedy wanted to stop all the tests. They wouldn't let him. So he just stopped them in the atmosphere and they went underground at the Western Shoshone Holy Land in Nevada. That's our test site, you know. And we did another thousand of them that were leaking into the water in the air, and, you know. It's, so then Gorbachev said, okay, he, he agreed when he had this, you know, he was opening up the whole country, perestroika, Glasnost, truth, and record, you know, and he stopped. And our lawyers group went to Congress and we said, Russia stopped testing the Soviet Union, you know, we should stop. And they said, oh, you can't trust the Russians. So Bill DeWitt, who was head of the New York City Bar and the founder of the is raised millions of dollars from his friends. He was with the Dutch, the winds that lived up the Hudson, you know, with the Roosevelt's, the river. We go to the Soviet Union and he hires a team of seismologists. And we go to the Soviet Union, we said, Can we put our seismologists around your test site in Kazakhstan to make sure that you really stop testing? And Gorgia said, Yes. And then we came back to Congress and we said, you don't have to trust the Russians. We have seismologists there and we'll know if they really didn't stop. So we were able to stop nuclear testing in America. I mean, that was a wonderful. But every time we go forward, we go backwards, you know. When we That was just a moratorium, but when we finally got the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, which was signed by Clinton and never ratified by Congress, but it's ratified by Russia and other countries. Clinton made this deal with the weapons with Dr. Strangelove and Los Alamos to give him $6 billion for laboratory tests and subcritical tests. And what a subcritical test? They were blowing up plutonium with chemicals a thousand feet below the desert floor in Nevada, but it didn't have a chain reaction. So Clinton said, it's not a test. Like, I didn't inhale, I didn't have sex, I'm not having a test, you know, that was, that was Clinton. And of course, as soon as we did that, the Russians did it, the Chinese, I mean, you know, they were never going to be behind in the arms race. They're just keeping up with us. But it's really up to us. And the other thing I learned in Russia that was very surprising to me, when I got there in 89, every guy over 60 was walking around with his World War II medals on his chest. And you go to the Leningrad Cemetery, 400,000 mass graves, just mounds of the year, no names, from the Nazi siege of Leningrad. 
And every street corner had a monument to the dead from the world, from the war, the great war. And my guy, we had guides that took us around, said to me, why don't you Americans trust us? I said, why don't we trust you? What about Hungary? What about Czechoslovakia? Why should we trust you? I was like, you know, the ugly American. And he looks at me with tears in his eyes. And he says, but we had to protect our borders from Germany. And I looked at him, and that was their tree. They were giving us such bullying. I mean, they might not have treated them so well, but after all, those guys gave the Nazis a free ride right into Russia. They had no love for Poles or Czechos, you know, they were. But they weren't coming after us. And that whole call, and, you know, that we had to stop the Russians, that was, they weren't coming anywhere. I mean, they lost so many people. You know what we spend on our military, like close to a trillion dollars, and they spend like, 300 billion, or so, you know, whatever. It's not, no, I mean, not 330 billion. You know, I mean, it's like 10% of what we spend mm -hmm. or less. You know, they're not, they're not really an enemy, except they matched us on the nukes, you know, to take care. And after all, Napoleon marched into Moscow. You know, I mean, they had double reason to be so occupational about Eastern Europe and protect their borders after what they suffered, you know. And uh, I read what Putin says because, you know, he makes a lot of sense. After we walked out of the, the, uh, the, uh, the anti-ballistic missile treaty where we agreed not to build anti-missiles so we didn't have to build so many missiles. And they were allowed one missile site in mind and they took it in Moscow. We were allowed one and we picked it in North Dakota, that place where the, and then Bush walked out of it and we put, you know, Missiles and, and he said we we planned with the Americans not to do that. You know, he said this really protected our security, allowed us to keep the arms, the arms race down, all in vain. And then we decided we had to provide weapons. And then our military industrial economy uses that as an excuse to build up ours, and that's where we are. You know, and just last this month, in well, this is June and May. Russia and China both gave a speech. China is now chairing the Security Council that we need to negotiate a treaty to keep weapons out of space. Where are we on this? We're spending fortunes on space. Um, so we talk about this as kind of we often hear it referred to as the you know the second existential threat outside of of climate change. Uh, what would a nuclear war look like uh, between China and Russia and, or Russia or well, any nation? Studies like the International Physicians of Prevention, where they did a study of 100 bombs went off between India and Pakistan. They were supposing we would have global winter. I mean, we're so worried about global warming. It would shut out the sun for eight years or so. There would be so much garbage in the air that we would have famine. Everybody would starve. Nobody could grow food. This is like, it's, it's, you can't do it. There's no way to do it. I mean, you know, we, we just two bombs, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that was it. You know, that was the only time they were ever used. We know we can't use it. And then we were doing all those tests in the Pacific. I mean, 
even nuclear power grew out of that. Like we had to give people reason to think it was good. So they did this Adams of Peace movie, you know, like they, they did it really to pay off the Japanese. Because one of our tests at the uh, Marshall Islands, the luck hit this Japanese fishing boat, the Lucky Dragon, and they were so angry, you know, the, the radioactive. And we gave them nuclear power, like we, we hired this PR guy to say how wonderful peaceful atom is, did this whole number. I mean, the peaceful atom, we just closed any nuclear power plant 25 miles from New York City. I mean, this is Fukushima on the Hudson, you know. Mm-hmm. And we closed it down. We have no idea what to do with the waste. It lasts, like I say, 300,000 years, and I was corrected. Some of it lasts a million years. Like certain elements of the radioactive waste so we don't even know what to do with it. I mean, we have to just stop making corn. Keep it safely where it is. Don't ship it. Don't try to bury it. Trying to bury it is ridiculous because how do you know what's going to happen in 100,000 years or a million years? Anyway, that's the existential threat. You know, and the climate's a threat. It is a threat. I mean, if we can't maintain our... We've had, uh, well, we had ages where world life was extinguished, right? The first extinction, we could be the next extinction. Mm-hmm. Um, so at this point, do you have any hope uh, for a world without nuclear weapons in the near future? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we're not going to get it from God. <laughs> <You know? laughs> we're, we're dragging him, kicking and screaming into the left-wing economics a little bit. You know, like, but he's not doing the minimum wage. He's not doing Medicare for all. He's not giving student debt. You know, all the progressive policies that are that Bernie and now it's Andrew. But on the military, I mean, the guy he put in, the new Secretary of Defense, was on the board of Raytheon. You know, I mean, he's not cutting anything. They just came out with a military budget that's obnoxious, and now he has a China policy, a new thing. Yes, no, I think Schumer put it in. I mean, that's my mythical Senator Schumer. You know, we picketed him in New York because he didn't support the Iran deal. You know, he's in bed, bed with the Israeli uh, lobby here. That works with the right-wing evangelicals who think Jesus mm-hmm. is going to return when the Jews occupy all the Arab land. You know? And then we'll all go to hell anyway. So. <laughs> making out, al- and we're making allies with them. I mean, it's, I'm I'm so upset about our country. I really am. I mean, I, I my grandparents came from Europe. I mean, we had family that died in the Holocaust. We felt so lucky to be in America. You know, I mean, and, and we saw our civil rights happen, and we ended the war in Vietnam. I worked in the whole the government campaign, literally nominated an anti-war candidate to run for president when George McGovern ran. Of course, the media killed him. They never wrote one honest word about him. The New York Times, they kept talking about his senator. He picked Senator Eagleton from Missouri to be his vice president. Turned out 20 years earlier, he had been hospitalized in manic depression. It's all they wrote about. It's like scandal. Nothing about the war, about civil rights, women's rights, gay rights. You know, it was ridiculous. The guy was fine. He was functioning as a senator for 20 years. They dug something up. 
Mm-hmm. The other guy they dug stuff up on I was worried about was Gary Hart. He was like a good candidate. I don't know. I forgot who he was running against. But he was like an anti-war peace guy. And they kept talking about his affair, right? Remember this? Well, Kennedy had affairs. Nixon had affairs. Rosa, no, they never wrote about it. Only when you get a peace candidate. Then all of a sudden, they got to write about his affair. Founded mm-hmm. it. So but I don't know why I made that point. Oh, when, and then when we nominated McGovern, you know, the superdelegates that stopped Bernie from beating Hillary the first time around, the Democrats have these superdelegates, they put them in after we won. That's what I'm saying, like democracy worked. Four years we worked door to door, we didn't have the internet, we elected delegates to the Democratic Convention all over the country. I was living on Long Island at the time, you know, suburban housewife. And in 1970, like the election was saw in 68, but in 70, I moved to Maryland because my husband's job. We were doing it in Maryland, all over the country, and I got a majority of delegates to nominate an anti-war candidate for president. And you can never do that again. They took over the party and put in all these, you know. So, but I'm saying that was like my experience of democracy working. Yeah, it can work, you know. Like, mm-hmm. uh, and I think there's good energy coming up, like all these truth-telling things, you know, like the Me Too and the Black Lives Matter and the uh, Columbus Day statues. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like we're starting to tell the truth about things, and I think we have to tell the truth about the U.S.-Russian relationship. There's been so much belonging. Mm-hmm. In the 50s, there was a comic strip called Pogo by Will Kelly. Did you ever hear of this? No. You're young. But anyway, he was this little possum, and he had these characters. And one of his lines, his most famous line was, he said, we met the enemy, and he is us. This is <laughs> so true. period. You know, and that's mm-hmm. who we are right now. We're doing it to ourselves. It's, and you know, the time, it's not just Fox News. I mean, the New York Times cooked up the Iraq war. They kept talking front page about Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction. And all of us knew he didn't have them after the first Gulf War. They inspected him. The IAEA came in and put everything under lock and key. And we were quite confident that he didn't have the and it's all a fake story to cook up for you. I mean, Crazy. Alice, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, thank you for your important work. It's great to be here. Nice to meet you.
Zach Boschman here, co-owner of CitizenTruth.org. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of the Citizen Truth Podcast. The intro and outro song is Enthusiast by Tours and is provided via the Creative Commons license. Please subscribe and check us out at CitizenTruth.org.